This morning we will be presenting the seventh in a series of sermons on the theme of the whole counsel of God, and we'll be dealing with the subject today on the scriptures as the word of God. We've labored for the last four Sundays in trying to very carefully establish one of the first stones in the foundation of the Christian faith, and that has been what is a purpose for man's existence. And a building is no stronger than its foundation, and the purpose of our whole theme will, through these sermons will be to lay a proper foundation on which that we can build thereon in our life in Christ. So having laid this foundation that man's chief end for his existence is to glorify and enjoy his God forever, we now want to proceed to the second foundational pillar in God's truth or his program, and that is the theme of the scriptures. What role do the scriptures or the Bible have in the plan of God? And by doing this, we would ask a question, an introduction to the text or the subject today, and that is, what rule or guideline has God given to us to direct us how we can enjoy and glorify him forever? Has God given us any guideline? If our purpose here on earth is to glorify and enjoy our God, then has he given us any guideline by which we can do this? Or has he merely created us, and now then he's left us, mankind, at our disposal to try to the best of our abilities to struggle our way through existence in trying to find out God's purpose for our life? Many people believe <coughs> they are called deists, that God merely created the heavens and the earth, and then he backed off, and everything that's taken place since then has taken place by happen chance or circumstance, apart from God, that God has no plan or he has no program for his creation. And many individuals today, because of the undermining of the word of God in our colleges and in our seminaries, it has become most prevalent to believe that God exists, but yet there is no message from him, and that if there is any message, we have to try to discover it by stumbling over it somewhere. But the answer to this question, has God given any guideline whereby that we can glorify him, is simply this, yes, and it is in the word of God which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy God. I want us to get that. The Bible is the only rule as to how we are to glorify and enjoy our God. God has not left it up to our own private ideas and interpretation as to how we think we can serve him and enjoy him. He has given us a book, and this is the only rule of faith and practice as to how we perform our duties before our God. Now, there is a need for rules and regulations and guidelines. This is obvious. It's seen in every segment of life. 
Where there are no rules, chaos and confusion reign. Suppose, for example, that we were going to play a baseball game, and we decided that there would be no rules. We would have no umpires. We'd just go out and play. And maybe one team might have five players on the field, and another one might have 150. Maybe the pitcher gets out on the mound, and he pitches one ball, and it's ten feet outside the plate, but he cries, you're out, batter. And the batter says, no, no, that's not right. I get ten strikes. And everyone is making up their own rules as they go along. Can you not imagine what a chaotic game that would be. Every segment of our life has certain guidelines by which we go by. And if we are to glorify and enjoy our God, are we left to our own guidelines? Are we left to make up our own rules? Or has God laid down the game plan? And we believe that he certainly has. And it's found within the pages of Holy Writ, the Scriptures, God's Word. In an era in time past when civil and religious confusion was abounding in the nation of Israel, the book of Judges closes with these words. Now listen carefully, I'm going to quote them to you, you don't have to turn there. Now listen, here's a time when Israel was in a state of confusion, chaos, both religiously and in their civil life. And here's the way the book of Judges closes, quote, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes, unquote. Now, is this true of us today? Do we have a right to do everything which is right in our own eyes and make up our own laws and our own rules and guidelines as to how we want to live? Or have there already been some laid down for us in the pages of God's Word? Now, this is the question at hand. Now, then, we'd ask the question of this. How can, Pastor, you say that the Scriptures are the Word of God when the things contained in the Scriptures were spoken and written by men? How can you say that the things that are here in the Bible came from God when they were written and spoken by men? It would appear to me, Pastor, that if God wanted to speak to us, he'd speak in his voice. And that if he wanted us to have inspired scriptures, he would have sent an angel, which would have given his very own handwriting from the pen of God. But no, the Bible was given to us by men. So how can we be assured that it is the word of God, and how can we call it God's word, since it was written and penned by men? And we answer in this fashion, the scriptures can be truly called the word of God because they did not originate in the minds and in the wills of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved upon by the Holy Ghost. That is, the Holy Spirit came upon these men and so captivated them that while they used their own personalities and their own minds, yet they spoke the things which God would have them speak. This is what we call inspiration. But we, not only, we don't stop there, because many would accept that today. 
But we go a step further and we say that we believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible. By that, we mean that the Holy Spirit moved and he gave these individual writers the words to say, not just the thoughts, so that we hold to what is set forth as a verbal, plenary, inspiration view of God's word. Now, I want to show this out in Scripture, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. Turn there in your Bibles, if you have them. Second Peter chapter 1 and verses 20 and 21. The Apostle Peter says this, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, did you catch that? What is he talking about? Now, some emphasize that the meaning of this scripture is that no one today has a right to understand the Bible on their own. Well, we certainly do not have the right to impose our ideas upon the scripture. We must interpret scripture with scripture. But it is not talking about that we do not have a right to privately understand or interpret the word of God. But what he is saying is this that the word of God which came to us from old time did not come by the private interpretations and ideas of men. That is, when the prophets wrote, they were not sitting down and giving their personal conceptions of God. And they were not sitting around some campfire somewhere, and one and Isaiah turns to Jeremiah and he says, Say, what do you think of God? And Jeremiah says, well, I've been giving that a little thought. Here's my views of God. And Isaiah listens to that. And he says, that sounds pretty good. Let's write that down and call it the Bible. No, that's not the way the Bible came, according to Peter. Peter said these men did not just originate the ideas in the Bible, but they spake as they were moved upon by the Holy Spirit of God. And thus, what they have recorded, we have a sure word of prophecy, and that it is not the conceptions and ideas of some men that have been collected by traditions around the campfires through generation after generation. Now you say, well, I believe that, Pastor, and I wish you could go to many of our seminaries and tell our professors that. You read their writings, and they tell you that in times past, the way we got our Bible is that around campfires, certain groups got together and they handed down traditions and conceptions of God, and then somebody later on, two or three hundred years before Christ, took all of these and he got out his, his uh, scissors and his glue and his paper, and he took all of these collections and he says, this sounds good, let's put it in here, I don't like this, let's cut this out, and some unknown editor put the Bible together. You say, well, that sounds, that sounds incredible. Nearly all of our Baptist schools teach that today. That's called the, the documentary theory of the Genesis account of creation. If you don't believe that, you read what was originally published in the first volume of the Broadman Commentary, and you'll see this very view published there. 
And that's that incidentally, that commentary is still uh, on uh, on the shelves. But if you will read the original first volume of that, you will find that that is the way they view that the Bible came to us by some unknown man. Editors, J, P and E got together and they decided what the Bible ought to be. And they took all these writings at hand. And then that's how we got it. Beloved, that's what's being taught our young ministers as they go to seminary today. Is it any wonder, then, why they come out and infiltrate our churches, and before long people are questioning what is the Word of God? You see that? How easy it is for this to happen. But no, we do not believe in that view of inspiration. We believe that the Old Testament writers, the New Testament writers, spake as they were moved upon by the Holy Spirit of God, so that Timothy could be told by Paul, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works, or furnished throughout all of his being unto good works. Now, what are some of the principal arguments to persuade us that the scriptures are of divine inspiration? Are there any? Yes, there are several, and the first one would be this, the very nature of the men who wrote this book persuades us that the scriptures are of divine inspiration and that they're not of human origin. If the scriptures did not come from God, we ask the question, where did they come from? If God did not breathe upon men so as to render them infallible in the writing of the original words, then where did these scriptures come from? Well, there's only two sources. Either good men wrote them or bad men wrote them. And we would ask this, bad men could not have written the Bible. Now, why? Because where do you find an evil man that would teach such holy teachings as are set forth in the Bible? and would speak so fiercely against sin. Where would you find an evil man like that? Let us go out into the world today and go to the drunkard. Would the drunkard have penned such a book as this, whereby he consigns himself to the pit, for an old drunkard shall enter into the kingdom of heaven? Would an evil man write the Bible and then condemn his own self? No, evil men do not do that. Whatever sin that they may participate in, evil men will not condemn themselves. So bad men could not have written the Bible because they would not teach such holy teachings and speak out so fiercely against sin. But on the other hand, good men, that is, by themselves, could not have been the authors of the Bible. Why not? Could a man be a good man and write a book and then counterfeit God's name to it by saying, Thus saith the Lord. Do you know anybody that could truly be called a good man who would write a book and then counterfeit his name to it as someone else has written it? No, he could not be called good. So good men could not have written the Bible. Bad men could not have written the Bible. So the only conclusion must be is that the Scriptures must have come from a higher source than that of man. God moved upon men to give them the revelation he would have for his people. Then another argument, 
as to the inspiration of the Scriptures, and that is by the content of its teachings. Open the pages of this book, and I ask you, where do you find anything in all of the writings of men that compare with what we find in the pages of Holy Writ? Man could not have known the things which are recorded in the Bible had they not been divinely revealed, because they are too profound. What do you mean by that, Pastor? As we read in the pages of God's Word, we find the story that the eternal God should be born in Bethlehem's manger. Figure that one out. Figure that one out. Who could have ever come up with an idea like that? The eternal God, who had no beginning or ending, becomes a person in Bethlehem's manger. The one who thunders in the heavens should cry in a cradle. Figure that one out. Could you have originated that idea? That he who sustains the stars in their orbit should nurse his strength from the breast of a woman. What philosopher could have thought that one out? Hmm? Some people try to give us the idea the writers of the Bible were a bunch of ignoramuses. Whoever could have conceived of the eternal one who keeps the stars in their orbits, sustains them, now nursing his strength from the breast of a woman? Who could have thought that one up? No, my friend, the scriptures are not of human origin. They are too profound in their very nature, in the matter that is contained. Who would have thought up the idea that the giver of all life should die on a cross? Life and death. Who could have thought that one up? Who would have ever come up with the conception that the Lord of all glory would be put to an open shame? Who originated that idea? Who could have ever conceived that sin would be punished to the fullest justice and yet pardoned to the fullest mercy? Who could have conceived of that? Let us read Shakespeare and Plato and all of the writers and let us admire the wisdom that they have. But my friend, they could not touch the hem of the garment compared to the wisdom and the profound knowledge that is revealed in the pages of this book, which it can only speak to us then as being of a higher origin than that of the thinking of man. It must have come from above by the content of its teachings, not only by the nature of the men who wrote it, not only by the content of its teachings, but another argument for the inspiration of God's word is the mighty effect that the word has upon the nature of man. It searches and discovers the secrets of men's hearts. No other book does that. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, listen carefully. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Two-edged, cuts both ways, you see. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, now listen, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
Beloved, what other book can you know of that you read that when you're reading it, you begin to feel like somebody's here with me and they know what's going on? What other book can you read like that? How many times in my ministry I've had individuals come up to me after a sermon or maybe later on in the week, two weeks later, and say, Preacher, you were preaching right at me. You must have known what I had done. No, I don't know what you've done, but the Word of God has exposed the secrets of the heart. It gets within. What other book can do this? And this is an argument that this book must be from above, because no other book can search the secrets of the heart and the thoughts of our innermost man as can the Word of God. Then it changes men's hearts. Psalm chapter 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Psalm 119, verse 50, the psalmist said, This is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath quickened me. Now, when you hear the word quickened, it has changed its meaning in our generation. The word quickened, when given in 16th century English, means living, making alive. We think of quickened today by how fast one can move. But when the Bible speaks of it quickening, it means it's a life-giving thing. And it quickens the very nature of man. It makes a person who was once one kind of a person another kind of a person. What other book can do that? It can transform one's very personality. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. Paul says, you individuals here, you declare that you have been worked upon by Christ, that you are the epistle, the written epistle of Christ, but not just with ink on tables of stone, but with the Spirit of the living God written within you. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. There is something powerful, beloved, about the word of God that sets it apart from all other words of men in that it and it alone has the ability to grant life unto a dead sinner involving the spiritual things of God. Now, if this be the case, here are three basic arguments for its inspiration, the nature of the men who wrote it. Either good men or bad men could not have written it. It must have come from above them. By the content of its teachings, who could have thought up the things that are contained in the pages of the Bible, and then the effect which it has upon the nature of man to search our heart and then to quicken the heart of sinners and make them anew. Now, to bring this to conclusion this morning, we'd ask one more question, and that is this. What, then, was the main purpose of God for giving us the Scriptures? Why did God give us the Scriptures in the form that he has in the writing of words? And the answer is this, and I want to give it to you and then apply it.
to your life and to our church and whatever else that it might be affable, that the people of God might, to the end of this world, have a sure, known, standing rule, now listen, to try and judge all things by, and thus not to be left to the uncertainty of changing methods and traditions. Now, what's the significance of this? Do we have a finished revelation of God? Now, this is the, one of the crucial issues that's being boxed back and forth in the theological world today. Do we have a completed revelation of God, or is it now God is working through certain individuals continually revealing new things unto them? Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. No higher revelation than that of the Son. God, who in Old Testament eras spoke through the prophets, hath now in the final days spoken unto us by his Son. And that voice which came down on the Mount of Transfiguration, This is my Son, hear ye him, completes the revelation of God to man. We are not to look for new visions. We are not to put the Bible on the shelf and try to develop new methods and things of trying to communicate the message of God to men. We have the guideline right here. And the problem, beloved, is not in trying to come up with new methods and traditions of relating to this generation. The problem the Church of Christ is in today is that it has bypassed the Bible as God's message to man. And very few ministers today will really stand for the necessity of the Bible as God's method of approach to men. Now, Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 29, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And I like that. If you want to know about Christ, you search the scriptures, for it's in those scriptures you'll find that which testifies of Christ. The scriptures are the final revelation of God to man. Now, why, again, we state, so that man might not have to be left to the uncertainty of changing methods and traditions. And this was what was the problem with the Jewish people when Christ came. They had attached so many of their traditions to the scriptures that he said, you have made the word of God of none effect. That is, you want your traditions and customs more than you want God's word. And as a result, they didn't know what God's word was. And we've made reference to a time or two in our study here on Sunday morning. The desperation of modern men trying to come up with new methods and ideas of how to reach people in this age. And 
Sometimes I laugh and then sometimes I literally cry when I see the desperation of the modern minister trying to reach this generation in which that he's called to serve. And so he thinks, well, now here's this age group. How can I communicate? How can I reach them? And rather than spending time in finding out the guidelines in the book, he has to go to a committee meeting, he has to go to, a, to an, an organization over here, how to do it, how to do it, how to do it. And as a result, he, is, he goes and he finds some new method. Now, this is really wild. You do this. And he neglects the ministry of the Word of God. I heard a preacher say this past week in St. Louis. They gave an excellent message on the ministry as set forth by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. He brought out a few things that I think could be applicable in the close of this message. And that would be, how would Paul minister unto this age if he were here? And he brought out a few things in reference to the church there at Corinth. Now, that church was one of the centers of world attention. They had the temple there where the prostitutes, some 900,000 there, prostitutes in that one city. You talk about a licentious city. It was a seaport where all what was going on in the, in the earth, the news traveled there. It was just the, the news capital of the world, so to speak. It was second only to the Olympian Games for its athletic events, the Parthenon and all that was contained there. Now, how would Paul, let's suppose, uh, Brother Guy, that you were with Paul and you went into this city and can't you just hear Paul sitting down and saying, now, listen, we've got to figure out some way of reaching these people. Now, boy, here's all of this group, and here's the gladiators here, and here's the athletics here, and here's this group right here. How are we going to reach them, Brother Austin? And yet Paul would, instead of saying like that, he would say, after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Corinth was where the philosophers were. But now let's put this in a modern setting. Here's the modern minister. He goes into Corinth. Here's the way he says, well, now, wait a minute, boys. Preaching just won't hack it. We're just not getting them in. They're just not coming. i tell you what let's do. Uh, Silas, you go over there and you get one of those gladiators. One that can really move those swords. And you get him converted. And you get him to come to the church and wear his gladiator suit. And then tell all how to use that sword, and then have him give his testimony, and that way we'll get all the gladiators here. Sound familiar? And you, Timothy, you're a young man yet. You can still run. You go over there to the games, and you get in the races, and you win one of the races, and then that'll really influence all those young people to come and hear you. Boy, we'll pack this place out. And, you know, 
I have a little wisdom myself in my training. I know philosophy. I'll go over here and I'll sit down with those philosophers and, and I'll give them a few little things to tickle their ears. And then, boy, they'll really come and hear what I've got to say. And, man, we'll pack that place out and God will be glorified. Sound familiar? Is there anyone here that knows your Bible at all that would think for one minute the Apostle Paul going into a city to evangelize on that basis? He said, after by wisdom the world by wisdom knew not God, God did not come down to man. But he confused man, if so to speak. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. You want to know what God's method is for evangelizing? It's the ministry of God's word. And you say, well, preacher, that just doesn't interest people. Paul knew that. He said, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him. You say, then, Pastor, what on earth was his hope? If the natural man was repelled by the gospel and he wouldn't come to even hear the preaching of the gospel, what was Paul's hope? Well, let me read it to you. Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, God's not in a popularity contest trying to, to mark down the price of the gospel to make it acceptable to the natural man. God's not having a fire sale to try to get rid of the gospel. He sets it forth in its clarity and in its truth, and then it pleased him, notice, we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Gentiles foolishness, but unto them which are called. He gives a divine call by the Holy Spirit to some, both Jews and Greeks, and to those individuals Christ becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's why, beloved, we need to concentrate upon reforming the work of God, getting it back to the guideline, thus saith the Lord, instead of spending all our time and energies trying to reach the interest of the natural man, go out and give him this. And it and if he will not receive that, then we are to shake the dust off of our feet and go somewhere else to proclaim the gospel. Because the preaching of the word of God is God's method of evangelizing fallen men. Shall we stand together for our closing prayer?